This week, we're going to be looking at Mark in the second chapter, verses 1 through 12. It's one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. And over the past few months, as I've looked at the news or social media or wherever I've looked and or listened, I've noticed a simple fact that I'm sure that you've noticed as well. It is the fact that things aren't okay. And when I say things aren't okay, I mean things aren't as God intended. Things aren't right with the world. And plain and simple, there are things in our world that need to change. And we don't like that word. We don't like this idea of change. And as I even mentioned a few weeks ago, talking about moving from compassion to action, when I look at all the change that may need to occur in our world, I can become overwhelmed and paralyzed by fear and anxiety and, and keep my compassion from turning to action. But I'm, I'm also reminded of a phrase that I heard from a pastor friend of mine. He said, if you move to a new church and the piano's on the right side and you want it to be on the left side, how do you get it there? And his answer was, you move it one inch every week. What he was saying is, ultimately, you continually move it, but small increments, so much so that people don't realize that the change is occurring. And what he's pointing at is what we hear in our text in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I, and I want to share this story because it's been really kind of tugging at my heart as I've looked around this week, as I've noticed how things are going in our world and the need for change. So as we look at Mark chapter 2, and we'll begin with verses 1 and 2, and it says, when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that, around that there was no longer room for them, not even in the front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. So I read this, and the first thing that comes to my mind is, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is from Nazareth. Why does it say that he's in Capernaum, and he's at home. And that's true, but after his baptism and the temptation in the wilderness, you, Jesus, you, if you recall, Jesus returned to Nazareth and was rejected by all the people that he grew up with. And so he moved just down the street to this little fishing village known as Capernaum. And for three, year, for three years of his ministry, Capernaum was his home. So Jesus had been out in the, Galilee, in the Galilean countryside preaching and healing, and he comes home, probably looking for a little rest, a little road-weary, if you will. Um, and as he comes home, word travels fast. And soon the whole town is gathered to hear him and to hear what Jesus wants to preach and, and instill in them. And this is when our story gets entertaining. Because we hear that you can't even get in the door, it, that they're so pressed in. And then beginning in verse 3, it says, Then some people came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. Now, we hear this, and, and I do want to give this disclaimer, that roofs in Israel, they're flat, they're easily accessible, they're, they're regularly used as outdoor living spaces, as you hear throughout Scripture. So 
So it was not unheard of to be on someone's roof. But this idea of digging through the roof to get into the house, that's when things got a little weird. I mean, just imagine being in that house and you're trying to listen to Jesus as closely as you can because you don't want to miss anything. And all of a sudden, you hear a racket. And it's coming from the roof and it begins to get louder and louder. And as you look up, you catch a speck of dirt falling and hitting you in the face. And then there are pieces of the roof being pulled off. And a person is on the roof with ropes attached. And he's being lowered into the room. When Luke tells this story in his gospel, he says that they lowered the man right to, to Jesus' feet. So these guys are strong, they're motivated, they're smart, and they have good aim. I mean, they, they didn't just lower him in and wherever he landed. He ends up right at the feet of, of Jesus. And then in verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I love this phrasing, when Jesus saw their faith. And that, to me, that just gives me hope. Doesn't it give you hope that as a son or a daughter, as a friend, this, this statement should give us hope that Jesus can see our faith. In a world that we see things that need to change, this statement should give us hope that Jesus can see our faith as we pursue his kingdom. That when we're trying to heal this broken world, when we're doing all that we can in our current situation and climate and finding new and innovative ways to encounter and share, that Jesus looks and sees our hope and our faith. So Jesus tells this paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven, and immediately some of the, the crowd begins to, to mumble and, and get a little upset with Jesus. And if you look at verses 6 and 7, it says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the first thing that really kind of gets me about this phrasing is as we look at the imagery that's happening here, we've heard about the man being lowered through the roof and how you can imagine that, how that was going on. But we've heard how crowded this space is, that there's no room for anybody. And where do we see the religious leaders? What is their posture? What are they doing? They're sitting down in a place that is standing room only, where people are so pressed in that you can't even get through the door. Here, these guys are sitting. And people won't even let this paralyzed man up front to get seen by Jesus, but so they have to come through, through the roof. So what we, when we hear that, these guys are supposed, these religious leaders are supposed to be teaching the people about loving the Lord, their God, with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving their neighbor as themselves. And instead of allowing those that need to encounter Christ to get to Jesus, they find themselves, whether consciously or subconsciously, in the front of the room, forming a barrier keeping others from experiencing Christ. 
these people obviously think very highly of themselves. But this is another sermon unto itself. But I do believe that it, this is the root of much of the division and hate and issues in our world is A, that the people that we as the followers of Christ or are, are, are we at least proclaiming to be the followers of Christ are, are, are keeping people from experiencing God in the way in which we act and posture ourselves in this world. And I mean, what I mean by that is that we are finding ourselves saying, I love Jesus and, and we'll put that on Facebook, but immediately after it, we'll have something about how somebody is a terrible person because they vote Democrat or because they disagree with our political alliance or because they, they disagree with how we feel about a particular issue or because they're pro-mask or anti-mask or whatever the issue is. Everything in our society seems to be a hot button issue nowadays. But I think it stems from the fact how we, as most of it, a lot of it stems from the fact of how we as Christians posture ourselves and say that our way is the only way. And that's not to, to, I'm not saying Christianity is not the only way, but what I'm saying is that we're not willing to engage in communication with somebody and open our ears to hear and to experience with somebody because we are too busy trying to tell people that they are wrong instead of getting to hear why they feel the way they do and actually engaging in relationship which we're called to do and a lot of that stems from one word which we need to look at and we really need to check for ourselves and that because that's the only person we can check it for is ego we think we're right everything we say is right everything we say is exactly how Jesus would feel about certain things. And so often, even in the scriptures, you hear Jesus getting into it with the scribes and the Pharisees, those people that feel like they are the, the end-all, be-all for religious law. And Jesus says, you're wrong. And so maybe we need to take a step back in the way in which we posture ourselves and say, there's a possibility we're wrong. Maybe we can look and say, I'm too focused on me instead of we. But anyways, whatever the reason, these persons doubt that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And so he proves them wrong. And how does he prove them wrong? In verse 8, beginning in verse 8, we hear, At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing the questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, go to your home. And he stood and immediately took the mat, went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified, God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Jesus, I love this because it doesn't say that Jesus heard them. It says that Jesus knew in his spirit. Jesus knows what they're thinking and says, okay, that's how you feel. Then let me prove you wrong. He wants to prove to all those that are crammed in this house, the people standing on top of the house, that, that he did have this power. The paralyzed man, as he was told, got up and left. And 
just as a side note, I can imagine this guy going, all right, bye, see y'all later. I can't believe I'm healed. And I wonder how far he got because he's so overwhelmed by joy before he realizes his buddies were still up on the roof. When all this was said and done, these four guys on the roof are the ones that I really want to focus on. I imagine their jaws were on the floor. I mean, these guys, they weren't out to change the world. And they weren't looking to do anything massive. All they wanted was to share Jesus with their friend. They wanted him to have the same opportunities that everyone else had. They wanted equality for their friend. They were willing to do something to make it happen. And my question is, how many of us, as we look around our world, really want equality for our neighbors and are willing to do something to make it happen? Now, I really, really doubt that when these guys woke up that morning that they thought they were going to be remembered in Holy Scripture forever. And I don't think that they woke up to set out to change the world, but I do think that these guys just wanted to help a friend. They wanted to live in a world where everybody had equality. They wanted to, to, to help a friend encounter Jesus and be made whole. And I think Mark's account resonates with me because, as I mentioned before, when, when we look at the world and even ourselves and know that there is a deep need in our world for love, compassion, and care, and that the change that we need is only possible through Jesus Christ, that's why this scripture just speaks to me so deeply. These men were not focused on changing the whole world, but on changing the world for this one person. They started where they could. They carried him down the street, up on a roof, dug a hole in that roof, and then they, they must have looked like complete lunatics, but they didn't care because someone they loved needed to meet Jesus, and they were going to do whatever it took to get him there. And I think so often we look around and we go, the world needs to change. And we're not willing to even engage in proper communication with our neighbor to hear where they're at. Instead, we're too busy forcing them to believe how we do, to hear what we hear. And I'll be the first to tell you, and I'm a preacher, and this pains me to say this, but I have never changed anyone's heart or mind via a Facebook argument. Haven't done it. First off, I've never changed anyone's heart to begin with. Only God can do that. But nobody, I've never seen anybody get into these arguments that we hear so often on Facebook and whatnot that say, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. That's never the way in which it happens. What happens is you engage in communication through relationship with people. And then when people know that, it's as the old adage says, I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. What would happen if we just began to love people, to enter into real relationship with people, to have authentic communication with people? Because, see, this is the small step that we can have that will create a big impact in the world. The small thing that we could do that could change the world of people around us forever. 
So often we think that we need to do something huge and massive. We need to invent something or have some new insider revelation that no one's ever had before. But oftentimes what the, the things that make the biggest impact are the smallest actions. And when we thought, start thinking that we have to do something big, what ends up happening is we do as I do, and we get paralyzed and we do nothing. What if instead of being beginning with how to end the worldwide issue of segregation, racism, division as we see it in our world, we began to view all people as our neighbors and actually cared about them and their souls. Instead of trying to fix the problems, we tried to introduce them to Jesus. Not trying to, to say, let me show you who Je how Jesus is, but just introduce them to the Jesus that we know. This is our problem that we are too busy trying to be Jesus instead of introducing people to Jesus. As Gandhi is quoted as saying, I love your Christ, but I do not love your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Do you remember the catalyst that Jesus was for Jesus deciding to forgive this paralyzed man? It was, as we heard in verse 5, the faith of his friends, that they believed Jesus could heal, help their friend. And even though they had to carry him and lift him and dig him in, dig a hole and lower him, they didn't give up. Can you imagine what the world would have missed out on if these friends said it was too far of a walk or that place is too crowded or Jesus never saw their faith? But Jesus saw how important it was for them to get this man to Jesus. So my question this morning is, do you have faith? Do your life and actions show that faith? Or does it show that it's all up to you? What would happen if we were more interested in introducing persons to the loving, merciful, grace-filled, and sin-forgiving Jesus instead of being a people that grow angry and hateful towards the different and then press them off to the margins? What would it look like if I was less worried about changing people but was more concerned with loving them? We're too caught up with trying to change people to be like us. What we need to do is take a page out of this text from Mark chapter 2 and realize that as disciples, our job is to lead persons to Christ, to allow God to be God. We can't all do something big to change the world, but we can all do something small to change someone's world. Whose world can you change by introducing them to Jesus today? And how will you do that? How do you plan to go and share Christ with this world that so badly needs to see, hear, and feel the love of Jesus Christ? thank you god bless and amen if you wish to support the ministries of henry's chapel the church in which i'm currently serving um, you can do so by sending any donations that you would like to 563 east main street again that church name is henry's chapel and the address is 563 east main street philadelphia mississippi 393 39350 Thank you. God bless.